Welcome to the Messy City Podcast. This is Kevin Klinkenberg. Delighted to have you back. I have my friend and fellow podcaster, Steve Garrett, uh, in the studio with me today. Steve, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. If the heat will break, it will be even more wonderful. But supposedly, you know, it'll break uh, tonight, right? That's why that's what they're telling us. I'm, I'm counting on it because I'm uh, helping my son move tomorrow. <laughs> well, that's a you picked a great time of year for that. Yes, or maybe he picked the time of year. Yeah, he's he needs a new calendar. <laughs> I'm uh, delighted to have uh, Steve here today uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, not not the least of which is Steve has. Uh, I've told him this before. He has a terrific radio voice. Uh, so I've got a lot to live up to. Uh, Steve has his own podcast called uh, Within the Realm. And uh, he generously reached out to me several months ago and gave me some uh, feedback and advice on this podcast and ways to improve it, improve it. And, uh, and along the way, we found we have a lot of uh, very similar interests related to uh, strong towns, to development and planning issues. And we're going to have a, a unique conversation today that's uh, uh, different from some of the others I've had. Uh, that are much more in the weeds about development and planning. And we're going to talk more uh, from the perspective of people who are not in that world. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. But I, I think, Steve, it would be really cool for people to know first a little bit about your background. You do have a unique background and you have this uh, podcast that I subscribe to now and I really enjoy. Uh, and I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about that to tee up our conversation. Well, I do have a podcast. It's called Within the Realm. It's available on uh, where you find your better podcasts, uh, which I think is everywhere. <laughs> uh, but uh, several years ago, uh, I got into podcasting. My son had introduced me to, to uh, these things called podcasts. And of course, I decided, well, I, I can do that. I can talk into a mic and, and uh, I've got all these crazy stories to tell. And I and how I came about these uh, crazy stories, I'm not sure, uh, but it just you know, happy accident. So, uh, and I'm a historian uh, by trade, and uh, so I tell stories about my hometown or towns close to my hometown, weird things that happened uh, where I grew up, which was in the uh, Cherokee Nation in the Ozarks in Oklahoma, and uh, you know always. Uh, characters there to, to talk about or, you know, really cool history. So, uh, so do the podcast, but uh, before I did the podcast, before I was so famous, <laughs> uh, I was uh, in city government. I've managed uh, several uh, communities in Oklahoma, Kansas, and Missouri. And, you know, all the, the development that goes with that, the utilities, uh, uh, dealing with folks, uh, even before I was in it to make money, uh, my mother had been on the city council in this small town in Oklahoma that I grew up in. Uh, she couldn't afford a babysitter, uh, so I went to the city council meetings, and I did my spelling homework uh, as the board did their work. So I've been exposed to cities and, and these discussions for a long time. And uh, so, uh, and, and I would like to be, I'm a, I'm wonk adjacent. I don't think I'm a wonk on mm -hmm. this stuff, but uh, when I saw this thing uh, come across my transom of the, you know, the messy city, I said, number one, that's a great name because it's <laughs> so 
uh, ad adequately uh, uh, described uh, what's going on and uh, then found that it's really, really enjoyable. And uh, some of the shows you've got, uh, done, I like the one with uh, uh, Henry Blackson. Howard. Howard yeah. Blackson. Yeah. Uh, and the next Urbanism, I thought mm -hmm. that was really, really good. Yeah. So. And and I would have to say, I think your brother sounds like an interesting fellow. Too. He he is a very interesting fellow, and I'm uh, obviously biased uh, in that regard. Um, but yeah, he's uh, he's he's gone down this really fascinating path related to the Mississippi River mm -hmm. uh, that uh, is really pretty amazing. And I'm not sure. I don't think he would tell you he ever set out to do that, but he's really gone that way and it's been kind of the passion of his life and, and, uh, it, it's terrific. So I'm sure, I'm sure knowing, uh, how much Dean and I enjoy talking, we'll do more podcasts. Um, so I, I also wanted to, uh, I think it'd be interesting to know, so your podcast, you have sort of a geographic, uh, focus to it as well. It's not just about storytelling, but there's this geographic focus. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Right. I, I call it uh, where the Great Plains, the Ozark Mountains, and the Indian Territory collide. And, you know, which is the Venn diagram of my life. My mom is a, a from a sod-busting family out in mm -hmm. western Oklahoma, and I'm from this, this group of uh, Cherokees and hillbillies uh, from the eastern side. And uh, in, in, you know, great great characters and great stories from all those places uh, you know from one of my favorites uh is clyde tombaugh he's this mm -hmm. farm kid uh that found pluto and uh he was he developed his own uh telescopes and mm -hmm. ground the lenses and you know this back in the 30s and or 20s actually and kind of a crazy you know story and you know like, somebody who just kind of got up and did his own thing. And, and I mean, he wasn't, he uh, was not college educated when he discovered Pluto and uh, you know, which is, uh, you know, to, uh, to an unrefined Okie like me, you know, it's like, well, it's one for us. <laughs> so, uh, and a university of Kansas guy. So I feel the same way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. you know, so in, any, anything for this flyover area, uh, there's, uh, we, we get a lot of disdain from the coasts, but, uh, there's there's plenty to be interested here yeah i think the the fat part of the fascinating thing about the pluto experience also is about every about every five years it seems like it you know the scientists decide whether it's a planet or not and i've actually lost track now on whether currently we think it's a planet or or something else right i i, I quit listening when it was a dwarf planet uh, it's still a planet to okay. me i'm one of those yeah. guys <laughs> i'm a science denier i suppose uh, <laughs> But yeah, uh, it it uh, Pluto has has gotten right up there with eggs. Is it bad for you? Are they good for you? <laughs> no I don't know. Is it a planet? Is it not a planet? Yeah. So uh, once they decide, I've given them instructions to let me know once you have decided. Yeah. And then I'll act accordingly. Well, I remember also listening to some of your episodes mm -hmm. and, and your stories, and there there's more than one where you talk about this experience of living uh, in a community, especially a smaller town. Uh, and the uh, relationship that people in your own family have had as you think about things to the built environment and the just the physical experience of living in those towns. And I, it, it seems like that's something that has attracted you or interested you for a long time. I wonder if you could maybe just share a little bit related to that. Well, and, you know, community is, is a, a big thing, and it's a thing that we 
uh, hear a lot about. And, um, you know, having grown up in a small town in a fairly isolated area, uh, it's hard to know how unique or not unique that experience is. But one of the things that uh, I do consider, the, the town that I'm from actually has the highest concentration of full-blood Cherokees there. I mean, hmm. it, uh, 80% of the population has some um, uh, her- Cher- Cherokee heritage. And, um, you know, so that's different than, than a lot of places. Mm-hmm. And, and when I was a kid, there were still people who spoke Cherokee only. Hmm. And um, so the culture was, was always there. And in, in the Cherokee culture, they have this thing called gadoogie. And uh, as with most other languages, it's, it's a concept. It's not a word. You just can't translate gadoogie into, into an English word because it's actually a phrase. And, um, uh, but it's kind of gelled around the idea of together. Gadoogie was the idea that when folks got a little too old to tend to their own garden, that sort of thing, we'll go over there and take care of that first and we'll tend to ours. That was uh, gadoogie or hmm. it, things like that. So we grew up with that concept is very much a Cherokee concept of community and the we, and uh, you know, we have to take care of, uh, of our elders. We have to take care of the kids and that sort of thing. And, uh, and in smaller towns, you have that. And that's right. something that people lament in, and I am one of them that, you know, living in um, a subdivision, a faceless subdivision in a faceless suburb you know, <laughs> of a metropolitan area um, that, you know, people drive into their, into their garage, the, sh- the door closes behind them and you never see them until the, the door opens the next morning. And, and, uh, you know, I've lived in the same house for 13 years and and I don't know all my neighbors. I'm mm-hmm. just as guilty as anybody. Sure. And but so I think that's one of the things that is really missing from community. And it does come from that built community. Like you said, um, of course, every small town in, in America is walkable because it's only half a mile wide and, right. and you know, maybe a mile long. And uh, our communities now aren't, uh, except, you know, where it was built a long time ago. So, um, so finding, finding ways to, um, redeem that idea of community, uh, because the built environment now really doesn't, um, lend itself to, to assisting with that. It, it's there to get your car in here and get your car out of here up there is the collector. Let's go. Yeah. And, uh, and community is learning to tolerate your neighbors, I think, is most of it. <laughs> or having them tolerate me is, is more the, the key. So that, that's uh, one of the things that, that I see as, as communities try to grow in the cities that I've uh, managed and been a part of, uh, that there is a template that we use that kind of is faceless and mm-hmm. soulless. And I'm, maybe I'm, I'm going to get a lot of hate for that kind of talk, but, uh, but, but by gosh, that's what I believe. <laughs> so when did you uh, first come across um, this world where you discovered there's a, 
there's this whole world of people talking about things like uh, city planning or town planning and and walkable communities and uh, and that that sort of effort, the strong towns world, the new urbanism world, whatever you want to call it. When when did you first really become aware of that? Well, I was at a uh, city managers get together in Topeka, I believe, and um, there was this guy who had a new book out, and it was called Strong Towns, and he started describing what what we ought to be looking for, and you know, it was one of those, you know what, I think he's right. And that, that sounds a lot like the town that I grew up in. And, and the towns have kind of changed because generations have changed, but back in the day, everybody wanted their town to be Mayberry. And, um, but we weren't building for Mayberry. And I'd always point out that Mayberry is a fictional town. (laughs) And if we want Mayberry, we need to get better writers for the sitcom that we're on um, or build it like, like Mayberry was built. Right. But anyway, it was, you know, in the, uh, when, whenever uh, uh, Chuck came out with the, uh, with the book, I think it was mid nineties or somewhere in there. Yeah. No, well, it was I mean, later than that, but yeah. Yeah. I was probably, that might've been five. Chuck's first book, I think came out about five or six years well, ago. Well, I was, I was misremembering when I was in Kansas. So yeah. Okay. About, but about that time, but it yeah. was, it was fairly uh, a fresh idea, kind of a revolutionary idea. Uh-huh. I, I remember doing the, you know, this is a great sentiment. Good luck. <laughs> but uh, he stuck around. He's been around for a while. And, and uh, uh, I, 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 but that's my first uh, inclination where it was sort of like, there's a movement of people that think this way. Yeah. Yeah. And so obviously there was something about that that connected with you, uh, were you able to take anything from that at the time and, and apply it to what you were doing in the city management world? Uh, at the time, I was managing a, a small town of about 3,000 people that was very walkable and, and very, um, very Mayberry-like mm-hmm. uh, due to um, its demographics. It was uh, a, a town settled by the, the Mennonites that came mm-hmm. over from the Ukraine in the 1880s. And, and there were still several people, they still spoke German. There were, the older mm-hmm. folks still spoke German and they knew the name of the ship their grandparents came over on. And, and uh, so it was still very homogenous. So uh, you had, uh, you had that community, that, that faith community that was there, that was central to the, um, to the experience of that town. And so it was like, okay, we just kind of heap some more things on top of this thing, maybe a modern idea. But one of the things that I did see with those towns, things were changing and um, people were moving in. They had a small university there and, and that uh, they were bringing in a lot of people in to teach and in leadership positions. And it's like, this is not going to last forever. How do you maintain your community? And, uh, I, I, I suggest that, um, in order for things to be simple, you need to be ready to be complex about it. And if you want things to be, um, y- you need to get into the game to keep things, um, the way that you want them to be, or to make them the way that you want them to be, mm-hmm. uh, because 
communities don't happen, uh, I think you create them or maintain them. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Uh, I, I've always personally had uh, this real trouble with uh, there. There's a there's a brand of personality out there that likes to disparage and complain about the way everything is in their community, but fails to understand that uh, if they want things to change, that you know, they have to actually propose something, do something, mm-hmm. get involved in some way. And it's not to say that um, people don't have a right to complain. They obviously do. But when you get to a place where all you're doing is just complaining and disparaging and you don't really offer any path forward for something else, it becomes really hard to give give a person any credence. Uh, or give for me, I just don't give them the time of day. Right. You know. But I think that you know part of you know, just becoming uh, having less gadoogie, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, builds into people a not not knowing how to address things. You know, I I can't make any change. I don't know anybody. Right. And even, uh, you know, I see, uh, people who, uh, they run for mayor and then they get beat for mayor and, and then they go to the house and don't do anything. And because they think that they have to be mayor mm-hmm. to change things. And which I always maintain is like, you have more laws apply to you when you're mayor. I mean, the power of being a citizen is, you know, tops in my book, you know, and, I'm going to become Thomas mm-hmm. Paine about this here in a second, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, as, as, as an American citizen, I have all the power I need. And, um, but sometimes you, you have to be able to, to uh, show people what your vision is and get them on board. And, and sometimes, uh, sometimes this uh, uh, strong towns idea with its bike lanes and scary things like that mm-hmm. uh, is hard to kind of a hard sell for some folks. Yeah. Yeah. So you started this by kind of reaching out to me and uh, asking, you know, about how uh, people who are not in this world, how they might get involved or what's it, I mean, what would you, how would you phrase that from your perspective? Well, you know, I listened to again with uh, uh, Mr. Blackson, the, the new urbanism and, Boy, there was a uh, a lot of great stuff in there, you know. Uh-huh. For you know, for a, a development nerd, it was yeah. a great show. Yeah, and um, and a lot of other other shows had uh, had the same uh, thing, you know. And, and these uh, some great discussions about thought, and and uh, uh, here's the uh, definition of of what we want to do. Here's the philosophy behind that, and. Um, and it's a little bit like uh, uh, having grown up in a, in a farm community. It's like, you know, that philosophy is really good, but you know, somebody's got to feed these chickens. <laughs> and, um, you know, so it's it's the somebody's got to feed these chickens part of um, we can say we want a town that's more walkable or we yeah. want a town that's more equitable or whatever that thing is that we're after. And how do you get it? Because I would say because we don't have it. Uh, says that it's hard to get mm-hmm. and or people don't know how to how to get it so right. what are the things that that uh, folks that that would want those that aren't mm-hmm. the mayor aren't a developer uh, what can they do uh, to help create the environment that they want to live in mm-hmm. 
And so that's where you come in because you're Kevin Boy genius. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> Lead us, Kevin. Oh, boy. Uh, I don't even know where to go after that. But uh, um. but, but I, I do believe that, that uh, you know, this is not just something for, you know, the uh, community leaders. It's not right. just something for developers. Uh, and, and maybe it turns people more into an activist uh, if there's a role for that in, yeah. in this. Well, and I, you know, I've kind of described in some previous episodes, I guess, you know, my own theory of how things change. And I think most good change probably comes from the bottom up and, you know, from a groundswell, uh, a gradual groundswell of interest uh, or support for something else. And it is a real challenge um, because, uh, you know, we live in a world today, I guess if I were to step back and kind of set the context, you know, we have had about a hundred years of planning and building our cities and towns the way they are right now, which is largely uh, oriented around driving, um, largely uh, enabled by a sort of planning administration that didn't exist before the 1920s, um, and uh, a whole series of uh, professional or professions that impact the built environment, uh, many of which were really created in the 20th century. And so it's, um, it's daunting because if you, if you're somebody who really enjoys say the pre 1920s, uh, places that we built, uh, as I do, uh, and you wish we had more, uh, of that, it's, it is, uh, it's a real challenge to look at our built world today and figure out where do you start? Uh, and w where does, where does a normal person start who doesn't even exist in this professional world uh, at all? And um, so it is a, it's, it's a really important question. It's a huge, it's a huge challenge, but I think there are a lot of really great uh, ways and a lot of, a lot of people who've put a lot of thought into that uh, over the years. Um, I think we can talk about, as I've thought about like th three broadly different areas that I've just experienced through my career uh, dealing with all this. I mean, I, I am an architect. Uh, I am an urban designer. Um, so I have done these things professionally now for longer than I care to admit. <laughs> um, but um, I, I've certainly experienced a, a different varieties of how these issues are talked, talked about and addressed. And, you know, I think broadly speaking, I would say there was like the new urbanism approach, which was much more about uh, professionals. Uh, it was really geared to the design professions and probably probably the role that you could say for citizens that was really talked about most within the new urbanism world was trying to build support for like long-term visions. You know, let's set a vision for how we think our neighborhood, our community uh, could change over the next 20 or 30 years. Uh, and so that's kind of limiting, you know, there aren't a lot of people that may m maybe know how to get involved in a way to support, you know, a visioning process. Uh, there were people who did it and people in places that were successful, but it kind of works more through establishment organizations and professions. And, um, so that is, that was challenging for the average citizen. And then Chuck came around with strong towns, um, and uh, I think really did a brilliant job of articulating 
uh, a very different approach, which engages um, anybody. Uh, and uh, the way that I think he puts it is their uh, four-step process, which is uh, identify uh, something small, some small thing where people are struggling today, uh, experiment with it inexpensively and quickly, um, see, you know, tweak it as you might need to, and then basically rinse and repeat and keep doing that same thing. And, and he's, he and strong towns and the staff have done a great job of articulating ways. I think that anybody, uh, who just has an interest in their community can look at those things and get involved because many of the issues that we deal with really are very, very localized and small issues. And they might be as simple as this particular street is hard to cross as a pedestrian boy, if I could cross this street safely, I would walk a lot more than I do today. Um, or it's, it's hard to ride a bicycle in my neighborhood. Uh, if we made it safer, uh, for me and my kids to ride, then I'd ride a bicycle more often, you know, simple things like that. So I think he's done a great job. And then really the third area, uh, uh, finish that thought. The third, uh, area really are the incremental development people, which kind of came along almost simultaneously with strong towns. Um, and it's really, you know, uh, the Andersons, John Anderson and Monty Anderson, both who kind of, uh, birthed that, that approach, which is to say, you, you may think that development is something that people with fancy suits and thousand dollar watches do, but in reality, development is something anybody can do. Uh, and if you uh, just want to take on a project, uh, whether it's as simple as renovating a house or building uh, a carriage house or a garage apartment, you're a developer. And what we really need are to find ways to teach people how to enter that world uh, so they can be people who solve problems in their own communities instead of waiting for somebody else to do it. So I, I think broadly speaking, I've seen kind of those three trends and approaches. Uh, so I'm curious, like what, what of any of those like resonates with you? What do you, what do you think about those? The taking in an idea and tweaking it and seeing what works, what doesn't work and keeping at it um, is something that I think has to be done. Now I'm going to tell you that um, city councils hate that stuff. Sure. Uh, because that needs to get fixed right now. And it looks like you're making it up as you go along. Yeah. Which is, hey, guess what? We are. We are <laughs> making this stuff up as we go along. But and and we're tied to what I think is uh, something that's, that can be detrimental. And it's almost the exact opposite of what you're talking about is, um, okay, we're going to have a... Um, a comprehensive plan. We're going to have a zoning code. Here's one from Kevinville. I'm going to scratch <laughs> out Kevinville and put in Steve Berg. Um, every place and voila. Uh, for for pennies on the dollar, I have my comprehensive plan, and I right. have my and and uh, as if every place is is the same. And and my complaint about uh, comprehensive plans is I've, I've been a city manager in, in a couple of different places. And the first thing you do when confronted with the comprehensive plan is you blow the dust off of it 
Mm-hmm. And then you open the thing up and you realize it's a 25 year old document, even though mm-hmm. uh, in some places by state law, you're supposed to update them uh, yeah. every 10 years. So you have this dusty old 25 year old um, comprehensive plan that your city looks nothing like what is described in this document. Right. Because we're making we're making it up as we go along, whether we like to admit it or not. So right. why don't we make up a place that we like? Uh, as we go along, but that seems very scary, uh, you know, when it's easier to stay in the pack. And I think that's one of the things that, that Chuck seems to be saying in strong towns is, um, forge your own way. Right. And, uh, well, that's not what polite people do, Kevin, is mm-hmm. that, you know, we stay in the pack, no, yeah. no fast moves and nobody gets hurt, um, kind of, kind of idea, but, but, you know, community is, is different and it should be different. And, um, and, and I'm not sure why, uh, it, it's so hard to get that to that point with the experimentation because it is hard to, um, you have some failures and nobody mm-hmm. likes being part of a failure. And, and in America, once you fail, well, you're done. Thank mm-hmm. you. You know, we'll go back to the way it was when, when we didn't know we were failing every day. Uh, so we can tell ourselves we're winning, but, but I think that, you know, the way that we set up the game with, um, standardized, uh, codes and standardized planning, uh, from town to town, uh, keeps us in a, in a place that, uh, that is without experimentation. Yeah. And I, somebody might be able to say that's not the, that's not the case, but I do think that we box ourselves in. Uh, to keep from, uh, the, uh, doesn't allow us to experiment like what you're talking about. Yeah. And so finding yeah. those places where a regular person, a regular citizen has an opportunity to experiment, uh, is a challenge. And, uh, I, I think one of the issues, one of the problems we have in the professional world is exactly what you described is there, to be frank, a lot of citizens are discouraged from participating and picking up and doing those things because it's like, nope, leave that leave that to the pros here. We know what we're doing. Uh, we'll take care of it. Uh, and, um, that, that, that is a real thing. Uh, I've done that. Yes. Yes. And I, I probably have as well. Uh, and there is, there is an arrogance that comes from being part of the administrative world. I was never arrogant. Oh, I'm sure you weren't. I was kindly, um, oppressive uh, or kindly dismissive. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, I'm sure myself and many colleagues of mine, uh, we've probably done the same thing. And, um, it, but I think there, there are ways to search out these, you know, opportunities, uh, still and find them. I'll, I'll give you just like one example of this. I, I think, uh, so first of all, there are, uh, in the strong towns world, they have three podcasts. Uh, one of them is done by our friend, Abby, uh, Abby Newsham here in Kansas city. She has one called Upzoned, which is terrific. And then Chuck has his, uh, called strong towns. The third one I think is called the little things. And, uh, it really features a lot of small efforts, um, that people can undertake. It's just stories of people doing it in their own communities. It's really, really quite interesting, but I can give you one just from here in midtown, uh, Kansas city which is we had, you know, some people, we had a um, in the neighborhood identify 
one little section of one street that uh, the pavement was really wide on, uh, which meant that people were driving too fast through it, as it always happens whenever you have a wider street. People, uh, the natural human thing to do is to just go faster. Uh, It was ugly. Um, but it's in an area where people do walk quite a bit. There's a lot of stores, there's a lot of apartments, there's schools and churches. And so we had somebody suggest to us that uh, some of this pavement uh, could be reclaimed by just, uh, if we could find the money to move the curbs out, plant some grass, plant some trees, and it would be a real improvement. Uh, so our organization uh, went out and we found the money to go do that. It didn't cost a lot of money. Uh, it cost, I mean, I guess a lot of money is, everything is all relative, but Correct. this particular little project uh, cost us about, um, it, we fixed four sides of an intersection and then a fairly, about a hundred foot length of street. And we spent, I think about $38,000 uh, on it. And uh, it it's transformed uh, that corner. It's far more attractive now. Uh, over time, the trees that we planted, you know, over many years will grow up and provide nice shade uh, for the area. Uh, and it's, uh, we see people walking and enjoying that little location more. It was just one little barrier uh, as a way uh, that that discouraged people maybe from walking around a little bit more in their own neighborhood. And And so, you know, that sort of thing, you know, that alone is not going to change the world. Um, but that sort of thing, if we can find opportunities to do that in lots of places as we need to do, there are literally hundreds of locations in our city where we could apply like the same idea and life would be better for people who live here. Um, you know, those are sort examples of some of the small things. Now, I think one of the things that you'll see through strong towns is they do things that are even smaller, much, much smaller than that that don't cost, you know, thirty, forty thousand $40,000, they might cost somebody like a few hundred bucks, you know, a, a very inexpensive thing to try to experiment with. But, uh, I, you know, that sprung from people talking to us and us listening uh, in our organization and then trying to help and figure things out. So I think there's, you know, that's one avenue um, that I see. I mean, I don't know, what, what do you think about stuff like that? Well, and, um, you know, because I'm an old punk rocker from from back in the day, <laughs> All right, good. I, anything described as being a guerrilla uh-huh. um, effort, I like. Um, being a city manager, I would have, you know, folks come to me and, you know, we need something for the kids to do or we need something for families to do. And, you know, what are you guys doing about it? And uh, in one city, we had a, a nice little half block downtown park and um and sometimes you could reserve it it had a stage and uh, it could be reserved and you could have events there but it was uh my contention that you can do anything you want to and it's not reserved mm-hmm. it's open to the public are you part of the public and they'd say well yeah so well then go do something yeah so um we came up with an idea they were talking about something for the kids to do the the town didn't have a pool and this was in the early days of splash pads only Mm. you know the the Mm. most elite cities had splash pads (laughs) and um you know to me i put that small town thinking uh to uh to use and uh 
got in cahoots with uh, a dad of younger uh, younger kids and went over to the hardware store and you know bought uh, half a dozen hoses and a bunch of lawn spraying uh, devices and we set it up and we decided to call it the squirt s k w i r t and you know on wednesday afternoons we'd go set it up he was he was home on wednesday afternoons and and, and during the summer we'd set it up and uh just say come on out and but if you know you're going to reserve the the uh the park, you know, it becomes one of those, oh, well, this sounds dangerous. You need to provide us with some insurance, you know, co-insurance and that sort of thing. So our idea was just make it people doing stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and that started to grow and, and someone decided to do a, um, a movie night in the park. And one of the businesses downtown uh, partnered with them and it was a restaurant, you know, so come get your stuff your meal here and then go across and, and have this. And it was all citizen driven because, um, if it had been the city, uh, doing the movie, it would have been all Benji and Herbie, the love bug all the time. Mm -hmm. And they showed, you know, some, uh, pretty new movies and, and, you know, things that they were able to, to license and get and that sort of thing. And it really didn't cost all that much money. And one of the right. banks actually provided the, the yeah. funds for that. And, but to me, you know, that, that ticked a lot of the boxes for me. It was citizen driven, yeah. cooperating with local businesses, you know, and it became the, um, the chops barbecue uh, screen. Cause you, the, the guy bought the screen and, um, you know, have some central bank popcorn and, you know, that sort of the, right. uh, naming rights was a big deal. For <laughs> but, uh, and, and that, uh, went on, you know, for two or three years, citizen driven. And, uh, uh, you know, and it was one of those things is like, it was a good example until, uh, you know, times went on and then, you know, got a couple of new people on the city council and they wanted to do it upright. And so now the city take the, you know, took it over and, I don't think we're even doing it anymore, hmm. but, um, hmm. but it was, but opportunities for citizens to participate in things, uh, that are community minded. It doesn't have to be an right. initiative petition or, right. or I don't need to be mayor. Right. And, and I thought that was a great community building thing. It was a very small thing, I guess. Uh, but it was a very big thing to, Absolutely. to, people, yeah. to people who wanted to see a free movie at the parks. So. Well, I, you know, I think, um, you know, like I said, the unfortunate reality is when we shifted to a very professional, professionally administered approach for cities, uh, which originally started in the 1920s, but then kind of grew gradually. Obviously, there was a 20 year period where not a lot happened with the Depression and World War II, um, but it really kicked in after World War II. And we had this uh, idea that we're going to put really smart people in charge. Uh, who have very specific technical expertise, and we're going to hand over the running of our cities uh, to them because they they know better. Uh, and um, that seemed like a really good idea at the time. Um, it, the downside has been is it it had this effect of really discouraging ordinary people from getting involved 
and doing things for themselves mm -hmm. that they might have an interest in. Well, and, and the world that we're living in is sort of handed to us. Here. Yeah, exactly. We, we've scratched off Kevinville and we've put right. in Steve Berg. Here you go. This is right. the town you're living in now. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think that that's, and I'm not even sure what the, the way to get back or to create a new path towards that. Yeah. An effective path is well. I think one of the things you know, again, part of the part of the strong towns thesis is that um, we have built vastly more infrastructure than we can afford to ever uh, maintain uh, in cities and towns of all sizes, uh, and that there is uh, there's sort of a, a quiet fiscal default going on all over America. It's not really called that, but you can see it in, in services being cut back and things, things maybe not getting done that used to get done, uh, and, and less and less ability for city government to take on things themselves. So what that does is it opens doors, uh, for, for people to fill gaps that need to be filled. Uh, and so like your example of, yeah, the, the movie night in the park, which might've been a function of a parks and rec department at one point, but now the parks and rec department doesn't have the capacity to do it. Well, you know, citizens themselves could figure it out. They think it's a cool thing to have. Let's, let's go do that. Um, the, the small, uh, maybe the bandstand in the park, it needs some renovations and that might've been a function of city government and the city maybe can't find a way to pay for it for a variety of reasons. So, you know, private groups come up and, and figure out how to get it, get it done as well. I think, I think people just have to be aware that there's more opportunity now to fill gaps that are not being filled and just be persistent uh, about it. Um, and I think there's also a different attitude. Um, I would say people our age and younger, um, I'm 53. You're probably about the same age. I'm older than you, oh, but thank you. Oh, you look good. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm going to mark that one down. <laughs> you're not much older. Than not you. much. Uh, but I think there is a different attitude even within city administration with people our age and younger who are more welcoming of uh, partnerships like that and people taking on uh, efforts that they know that they just don't have the capacity to to get on with themselves so well and we have this giant generational change that is yeah. is going to be here and and a thing like it already is a thing but i know 10 years ago we were talking about um you know what now these millennials are going to do this or whatever mm -hmm. and uh, you know and they're a big generation and uh, gosh we're already into uh, gen z mm -hmm. uh being you know something that we have to think about and they, these younger generations see the world vastly different than we see them. Mm -hmm. I happen to agree with them. Um, even though I'm an older guy, you know, I'm hip enough to, you know, hang with the kids, <laughs> but, but their values strike me as very different than the built world in which we live in. Yeah. Uh, but that's the one that they have to work with. And so I think that there might be some rub as we, as the generations change hands. Yeah. And that's something that it's hard to talk about because it's such an unknown and, and a lot of people have a, a lot of uh, uh, angst tied up in that. Yeah. And there's, 
there's a lot, there's no question there's a big difference in the interest in, say, urban living or whatever you want, want to call it, walkable cities. Um, there's, there's a vast difference by age. Uh, and, uh, you know, my feeling is that's something that happened gradually, you know, over time. Uh, some of the older uh, boomers who stayed in um, the old neighborhoods and fixed things up probably uh, are the ones who initiated that trend. Uh, and then people our age um, picked it up and and accelerated it a little bit. And then it comes around to the point now where you have millennials and younger generation who uh, can benefit from a lot of that work that work that has been done, that really enjoy it. They see the value and they want they want to accelerate it even faster and get us uh, back more to a place where uh, having the ability to walk, to ride a streetcar, to ride a bike, those are like normal things, not just in one tiny part uh, of a city. So, yeah, I think there's 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 no doubt a shift there. What what do you think? I know you've talked to me a little bit about your son and his interests, his professional interests, and just interest in all of this. What do you think about this notion of small development, incremental development? I mean, does that is that something that you feel like uh, is attainable for uh, or interesting for people who are not in my world? Uh, well, let me have let me put a disclaimer here. I, I have not uh, been granted permission to discuss and said <laughs> oldest son's uh, uh, dealings, uh, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, he works uh, for a city in the planning department, and uh, uh, he sees these things that we're talking about. And I mean, even recently, uh, he came across. Uh, uh, a project that someone wanted to put a small neighborhood uh, grocery store mm -hmm. in. And he says, actually, that fits the, uh, the mold of what we want to do. That fits the comprehensive plan. But, um, you know, it's not, it's not what was there. It might be somewhat of a stretch for people to see that vision, uh, but it would be a great service in his mind to the neighborhood. So he was kind of ready for a little bit of pushback on this and took it to the, to the planning commission and they approved it, you know? And so he said, okay, so, you know, there's some folks that see the world somewhat the same way that I do. Um, and, and, but, you know, I've warned him that there are some people who, um, you know, see, see see all this, see all these uh, beautiful hills and wetlands and places where animals live. Yeah, that this is all underused because it should all be, you know, in skyscrapers and whatever, <laughs> you know, luxury apartments. And I don't think there's anybody that's quite that bad, but I have known <laughs> some people that I'm, I'm pretty sure would agree with that sentiment. But, uh, but you know, and, and, and as a younger person, one of these uh, generations that we're talking about, he sees those plans, you know, as, you know, if we're, if we don't like what it's giving us, we need to change them, you know, and changing plans at cities is hard it's and arduous hard. Yeah. And, and that sort of thing. But I think we need to get over that uh, because um, we are trying to create something, you know, mm -hmm. that's to our own benefit, not trying to keep something uh, convenient and easy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like you, like you said that, okay, let's try this. Oh, that didn't work. Okay. Let's tweak it. Um, and many times you don't get that chance to, to tweak because mm -hmm. it's 
you know, well, that was a dismal failure. And it's like, well, yes, it was, but not all of it was a dismal failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that we just don't give ourselves time to experiment. One of the things that, that it was revolutionary for me, I got to thinking about, um, as a city manager, you know, you sometimes you, what's my legacy going to be? Mm-hmm. And, uh, then I kind of came up with the idea that I didn't, I wanted that something to happen in 20 years from from when uh, uh, from when I was the city manager that they would say, "Hey, that guy, whoever that guy was that was the city manager 20 years ago, he set us up for this good thing here. He wasn't an idiot. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't know who what my name was, you know. But you have mm-hmm. some people who really want to have some sort of a legacy. Communities are going to be here for years and years, we would hope. But for the most part, they're going to be here." for years and years after we're gone and that we're here for a limited time and that you want to set that community to continue to grow with a different generation, a different thought, different things are going to happen. Um, but so many times that, that we view ourselves as uh, finite, mm-hmm. you know, this is, this is when I'm dealing with, and I don't know uh, that we look to the future quite like we were able to, uh, you being an old guy, uh, you know, back in the space age, yeah. uh, we look to the future. It seemed to me, yeah. uh, we look to the future a lot and, and, uh, and maybe it's just hard to look to the future because, um, so many of the things that we have now as we were kids was, um, science fiction from the 23rd century. Right. And, you know, now it's 40 years later and yeah, it's the thing. So, um, so I don't know if it's all that alien technology or whatever that, they, <laughs> uh, some of my, uh, conspiracy minded friends want me to believe, but, um, but I don't know that we know how to look to the future very well. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know if that's a lack of imagination or just cause we have, it's coming so fast. We don't know what it's going to be like. Mm-hmm. Well, let me try to connect a couple of threads because I mean, thank you. Someone needs to, (laughs) well, uh, it's just, it occurred to me while you're talking about that, that, um, yeah, I agree. We've got to find a way to like, we've got to find a way to have those visions for the future. Uh, I mean, I've, I've done so many of those for neighborhoods or communities that, um, uh, I, I obviously have a bias that I think those are important. I also think they're hard. I think they're often, they're often done very poorly. Uh, they're often done in ways that give people a false sense of um, hope about what can really happen uh, in a time frame. But I also, you know, am uh, of the mind that uh, you have to give people something exciting to think about for the future because that's, you know, that's just part of life. You know, you want to have something to aspire to. Uh, an individual wants to have something to aspire to. And I think, uh, a group of people needs to have something to aspire to as well. So I think those visions are important. I I wrote a piece uh, a while ago, uh, about 10 or 15 years ago called 10,000 new developers. And it was really uh, about this whole notion that I think, uh, you know, if every one of, I just simplistically thought about like the hundred largest metros in the country. If if each of them had a hundred new small scale developers, like what that difference would make uh, for those communities. And uh, 
the, the thought process for me was, first of all, if you had that cohort, they would really, um, they would become a force within that city. So it would be a different group of people uh, who were lobbying their city government and others to take a look at the plans and the codes and everything and, you know, what we're doing. Because here we are, we're the people that live here, we're doing projects and we're saying, you know, we need to think 10 or 20 years ahead and we need to change X, Y, and Z. But what I hadn't really thought about was in my recent interview with uh, Mike Keene in South Bend, Indiana, which uh, as of this recording, that hasn't come out yet. Uh, he has a group of people that's kind of doing that in South Bend. And one of the really cool things he talked about is, you know, they're all as individuals, very small. But the city of South Bend realized that when you put all like 30 of them together, that they're the largest developer in South Bend. Mm -hmm. And that changes the whole conversation then about what, you know, what we're doing with our communities. And so uh, I, I felt like that is, that's the direction that people can go where, you know, you, you may see your, if you're like a small developer and you're doing maybe like one building a year or two buildings a year. But if you find your people and you find that there's a group of you in your community that are doing similar things, guess what? The combined force of all of you can is something that City Hall will listen to. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, that, that's, that's kind of my attempt to kind of string those threads together. Well, and, and I think that that kind of effort that you described, as soon as you said it, you know, you have 30 people designing and, and coming with up with ideas and so you you come up with a uh, flavor of something i mean the, more of a stew than yeah than a soup or whatever right. and um so it just doesn't become you know this okay i know what that guy was thinking uh you know when he was doing all this and uh i think uh kansas city you know having grown up in in the country and, and mm -hmm. lived out in the hills and the in the plains most of my life uh, coming to the city uh late in life i think kansas city has some good examples of uh things that they've done well uh, i found myself here on new year's eve the year 2000 <laughs> uh, with my family and we were staying down in crown center and so let's go look at the city. And we drove across the railroad tracks to the north through this place. And my wife got scared and my my aged mother got scared. And so I uh, found a convenient place to turn around, you know, back mm -hmm. to the civilization of, of Crown Center. That place is now the crossroads. Right. And, um, you know, what a what a change. And, and the crossroads is weird and eclectic and, yeah. and, uh, and a place that people want to go. And I think that, and, and I think there was probably, I wasn't here for it, uh, but I think there was a lot of effort put into, and a lot of things that were tried and failed and tweaked. Yeah. Uh, getting there. And a lot of individuals, many of whom with very modest means, a lot of artists, um, a lot of pioneers, you know, um, buying or renting those old buildings and just experimenting and trying things out. And um, later on, there were larger catalyst projects that, that spurred it ahead, but it was really those individuals who were willing to take a risk on a place. Do you think that, the larger projects would have come without the smaller projects 
that started it? No, I don't. I, I think that's just the nature of how places change. Um, there are, uh, we often talk about there's like, there's three cycles uh, to the redevelopment uh, of a place. Uh, the first cycle are the risk oblivious, which are people like artists and, and others who you know are not really concerned with risk. Um, the the second are um, uh, the risk aware, which are people like developers who once something has been established in an area and something is interesting and there's some culture and life, uh, they, the developers take a lot of risk, but they're aware of the risks and they're willing to take them. And then the third um, category are the risk averse, which we used to describe as like dentists from New Jersey, you know, people who are, they're, they're not interested in risk at all once everything's taken care of, right. then they'll move into an area. Right. Uh, and, uh, and I think you see that cycle over and over and over again. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be artists that start it, but that's one stereotypical uh, group of people that often are very oblivious to risk and don't care. And they'll go into a place and they'll create life uh, there which is pretty cool. Um, so what I hear you saying is that the average citizen should take their retirement nest egg <laughs> and go buy a decrepit building somewhere and uh, go for it. That is not what I'm saying. Okay, this is okay. um, nothing here is financial advice. <laughs> <laughs> this is not to be understood as financial advice. Uh, but I do think, I do think there are lots of ways for people of all ages to, uh, participate in something. Um, but talk about the place you're, so you're in Smithville, Missouri now, right. which is really a neat little town or it has an old downtown portion. That's pretty neat. And then it right. has a whole bunch of new suburban growth. What, what do you, how do you think Smithville fits into this conversation about community and place? Smithville is a place that is looking for itself. And I think is starting to find itself. Uh, for many years, uh, it was one of the faster-growing suburbs in the metro area, if not the state. And um, and it stretches out 10 miles along uh, Highway 169. Mm -hmm. And I live out on the, the far extreme north end of town uh -huh. to the point that people would come to visit us. And they say, hey, I'm at the stoplight in, in – uh, uh, downtown Smithville, where do I go from here? I said, just keep heading north. And then, you know, I'd wait a couple minutes and then they'd call and I said, hey, all I'm seeing is cornfields. I said, keep coming, keep coming. <laughs> and they'd call in about another minute to go, hey, I haven't seen nothing but cornfields for like the last five minutes. I said, you're going to come up here. You're going to see a highway it goes off to the east. Take that, mm -hmm. you know, and then, you know, so it was as a as a plan, mm -hmm. I, I don't know that I, I'm a giant fan of the of what how it came about. You know, right. because the the suburbs or the subdivisions that were built were actually very far away from the city. Yeah. And back to the the infrastructure, lots of infrastructure uh, built that makes it hard to to uh, deal with as as a city and as uh, you know rate payers have to pay that, mm -hmm. et cetera. And, um, you know, so it's, it's not, it's not like it's neighbors, you know, Kearney to the East and, and Platte city to the West. Uh, but people tend to think that 
that it is, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it has with that downtown area, it, it's small, you know, it was um, subject to flood, some big floods back in the 60s. And uh, it's where the park came from that mm. washed, uh, washed away some of the buildings. Hmm. And uh, uh, but yeah, there's there's a lot of opportunities in these small towns. The small towns don't know how to or want to uh, have that discussion that you described. Yeah. Who are we? Where are we going? And um, and sometimes, and I think this was the case, I might not be invited back to, you know, they might stop me at the border at Smithville and say, stop talking bad about us. But I don't think I think this is more of a fact than it than it's uh, bad mouthing. But you still you had folks that had moved in there because of the of the housing that was provided mm-hmm. and the good school and that right. sort of thing um, that were not immediately uh, embraced by the folks that had lived there for years and years and years. Right. And I think that uh, there's an uneasy truce amongst yeah. those folks now and um, and looking towards the future. Uh, but and, and because the uh, current mayor has done a lot of that planning, a lot of uh, uh, let's sit down and, and talk this out, get a professional to kind of walk us through this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been very important. And I think a lot of people don't like that because it's time consuming and sure. And you have to listen yeah. to other people's opinions and, you know, yeah. who wants to do that. Right. So but it's very important. And I think that's that's a step uh, that uh, doesn't happen all the time. And, and like you alluded to. Uh, you can go through all that and still have a mess. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know what this means, you know? And yeah. so, but I, even if you have a mess, I think it's very, very important to, uh, to have community wide discussions. And we just don't do that much anymore. I do know it may be interesting for the mayor and others. Uh, I, I just know friends that have involved, you know, Pleasant Hill is a kind of a similar community on mm-hmm. the Southeast side of the Metro that just went through a, pretty intense visioning process that I think would be interesting um, for Smithville. They're probably, Pleasant Hill is probably a little smaller. Smithville is probably a little further along in terms of uh, being part of the suburban growth pattern Mm -hmm. of Kansas City. Uh, There are obviously a half dozen other communities like it around the metro. It kind of always strikes me that communities like Smithville have the, they have the blessing and the curse of the state highway. Yes. You know, the, the state highway gives you direct access into downtown Kansas City quite quickly with very little traffic, really, in comparison to other routes in the metro. But it has the curse of once it enters the Smithville proper, it becomes like, you know, in strong towns lingo, a strode, um, like every other strode. And, and it's, we're adding stop signs all the time. And it's just, yeah, kind of placeless development that, that is anywhere USA. Um, and uh, I, I will confess that years ago in my presentations I used to give around town about how, how not to do things and, and how to do things, in my opinion, as, as good planning, I used to have a picture of the library in Smithville off the side of the highway <laughs> as just like, you know, why, why is the library stuck off the side of the highway? Like it's in an industrial park, you know, instead of actually integrated into the fabric of the community where kids could walk to it, you know, people could ride their bikes to it, et cetera. And, and that is exactly it, uh, that, that you have some, 
secluded uh, neighborhoods that you know have their own their own thing going right. and, and with their HOA and they have their own pool and and there's some walkability within those uh, subdivisions and maybe the neighboring subdivision. But uh, Smithville built a new school out mm-hmm. north towards towards us, and uh, this was while I was city manager, and it was on a a, a county highway, you know, mm-hmm. a state highway, and uh, not a lot of traffic, but enough that in no shoulder on it. Kids aren't going to walk on this. Yeah. Kids still walk to school, and they have a crosswalk, but mm-hmm. you know. I don't know that I'd let, I wouldn't be excited about my kids walking to school, but you know, my kids yeah. were more daredevils than other, <laughs> other children. Um, but you know, and, and to me, it's such a shame because it, it could be one of those things and people wanted that. And, um, you know, so how do we work to get that? One of the things that, that we did was because it was a state highway, we don't have any say over that. Right. So, we traded the state. Uh, I can't remember what it was, but the city took that over. Okay. And, uh, you know, you're going to do this for us and we'll take this over. And uh, which we, at the time, thought was pretty important so that we could have control over yeah, that yeah. stretch road. And uh, I think they're black topping it as we speak. And you know? so, um, uh, you know, and that's a, that was a small thing, I, I believe, but, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what the plan would be now, yeah. but but when it was a state highway, the plan didn't matter because it wasn't ours to, to do. So things like that, you know, and, and there were people who thought that was a big mistake, you know, because now we have, you know, three more miles of road to pave. Yes, that's true. But we also mm-hmm. had three more miles of road that we can control, Yeah, um, which is which was hindering some of our development, I yeah. believe. Yeah, and that's an interesting trade-off that many communities wrestle with, which is that uh, the ownership versus control and really how much is the state doing for you anyway uh, in terms of maintenance. Maybe maybe in some cases they maintain a lot and maybe other cases they're not doing much anyway. Well, and here's, it was a lettered highway. So yeah. the interstates, it, big snow, right? Big snow comes. Interstates get first treatment, numbered highways, and then lettered highways. Okay, so um, they're out taking care of what they need to take care of. The interesting thing is we're waiting for the state to get to the letter highways, which we use as collectors. Right. You know, and so it's like, and, and we'd go out and we'd clear the streets in your suburb or a subdivision, sorry. Uh, so you can get out to this road that's not cleared, yeah. you know, and, you know, so it's okay. What, what do we need to do? And, um, you know, so I think thinking like that, that was a long-term, uh, long-term vision. And I think it was a risk, you know, it was, yeah. some people see that as, as an additional expense, um, which it was, but you know, what do you get, what comes along with that? And yeah. I think you have to think about that. Yeah. Well, um, despite my, uh, criticisms related to the state highway, I mean, I think Smithville is a charming community. I love the little downtown. I think it's, it's clearly gotten better over the years. There's more events going on. Um, we've been up there a number of times, bring the family up and, uh, the combination of the downtown and the lake being there is really a pretty cool mm-hmm. and unique deal, uh, for the Metro area. Um, and closest lake to downtown it is and it's uh, it's a beautiful lake very nice lake and 
it's got that amazing Halloween uh, event in the RV park uh, yes. right right next to the dam, which uh, our kids just adore. We've had so much fun doing that. So I'm sure we'll be up many, many more times. Uh, well, and, and, you know, that's one of those things that, um, you know, uh, there was always this competition. You know, it was a friendly competition yeah. between Smithville and Kearney. And, uh, you know, and we'd always point out, uh, Carney's got the interstate. Yeah. You know, Carney's always going to be more attractive because it has, you know, four lanes going, you know, in and mm -hmm. out of it. But uh, Smithville has the lake. Yeah. And, you know, what is it? What is it that, uh, you know, makes your town different? You just can't, you know, scratch off Carney, put Smithville because there are different geographic uh, mm -hmm. and ethnic and, and communal uh, features in each, each town. And, and I think you have to figure that out. Yeah. And there were times when I don't, I don't think people, uh, there were still people that were mad that the, the lake was built huh. in, in Smithville when I first got there, you know, my yeah. granddad used to own farm that down there. Sure. It's like, yeah. It's like, okay, well, it was always a lake when I got here, you yeah. know, and, and people love to boat on it and do yeah. things. It's a, it's a, it's a great asset to have. Yeah, I, I think if I were a community, I'd rather have the lake. Uh, agreed. Totally agreed. <laughs> it's an incredible thing. Um, we've done a little over an hour. We should probably wrap it. Do you want to take a shot at the messy city question? You've probably heard this uh, before in other episodes. Well, uh, run it by me and let's see what we can do. Okay, so the podcast is called The Messy City. I like to ask people of a favorite place of theirs, could be a uh, a neighborhood could be a town or a city that seems to fit that bill that uh, feels uh, a little more organic and bottom up and, and, you know, not perfectly planned, but never, nonetheless, very enjoyable. Do you have something that fits that bill? Or what do you think of when, when well, I, 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 th I think of um, different places at, at different times. Um, I don't think, I don't know. I, I think they're less messy now, but there was a time when uh, downtown Oklahoma city mm -hmm. was, you know, trying to become something, you know, and it was one of yeah. those neighborhoods you didn't drive through suddenly became the neighborhood you went to for, for fun. And, uh, you know, recently a, a friend took me to a, a thunder game there. Uh -huh. I think it was the last thunder game they had before the pandemic. <laughs> and, uh, that's but, not recently, Steve. <laughs> well, you know, when you're as old as me, you know, decades <laughs> seemed yeah. like years, yeah. but, uh, what, what struck me was, uh, you know, where we parked to walk over to the, uh, to the arena. Um, I, I got out and I looked around and, and I said, oh yeah, that's the, uh, that's the street that you never went past because you would certainly die here, you know, where yeah. we just parked. And, uh, you know, and, and it was the place where people came and, and, and there was a lot of, uh, uh, opportunity for people to gather and, you know, not mm -hmm. just the, the, uh, uh, the, the sports that's there. And, you know, on a large scale, I think that Oklahoma city did a good job and, and, and it was kind of fun to watch as it, as it went up. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, so that would be my, my favorite big city. Um, 
Siloam Springs, Arkansas. Have you ever been to Siloam? I haven't been to Siloam Springs. Uh, this is my wife's hometown. Okay. And um, it was uh, a quiet little town of uh, of upright and wonderful people <laughs> that, uh, you know, it sits right on the state line. And, you know, they always look down their nose at people that came from the wrong side of the state line, like mm -hmm. me. <laughs> um but they have, I think it's been named one of the li most livable cities in, uh, in the United States. And they've done a lot with their downtown. Uh, they have a growing uh, college there, John Brown University. Um, they've done just things that really, the, the, the town has a great vibe. Mm -hmm. Now, the last time I drove through town, I noticed that they have a Whataburger now. Uh-oh. They've hit the big time now. And, yeah, and they have, a, you know, the Pi 5 and the whatever. Yeah. And out on the out on the bypass, they look like just another right. place. And now a friend of mine used to be the mayor there, and so if he hears this, he'll probably get mad at me. But – and and maybe that's what bypasses are for is for that's where the the yeah. Whataburger goes and the Jimmy John's goes and not that I dislike any of these places, <laughs> but uh, but they've got these crazy um, you know handmade uh, ice cream shop downtown that's great and these uh, you know sugar free flavors that you can't tell are sugar free and mm -hmm. and and just you know the the shops that you go to and you go this is weird and lovable and all that and i guess you know again the bypass isn't the place for that you need to slow down and and enjoy it but um you know i don't know it, it's uh um it seems sometimes that you you take your eye off of that thing that makes you endearing for the quick and easy yeah um payoff yeah and i might be wrong about that hopefully i'm wrong but silent springs is is a interesting place to spend an afternoon well i'll have to i'll have to add that to the list i i love that part of the country i love northwest arkansas northeast oklahoma that whole area uh it's just beautiful a lot of really cool little towns and growing town dramatically growing towns but it, uh, it is amazing uh, i think once i left it started growing so uh, <laughs> that you were the key I, yes yeah get this guy out of here <laughs> it's gonna be great yeah uh, so that, that's really cool. And I've been to Oklahoma city twice in the last year and agree. It's, it's amazing how much has changed, uh, in that community. So, and, and it used to be a depressing little it did. dirty place. It, it was totally depressing. Uh, and, uh, it's really, there's been a transformation in that downtown. That's really cool to see. Yeah. Uh, well, Steve, uh, you can find Steve at within the realm, great, uh, stories that are, uh, often fairly short. So easy listen. 10 or 15 minutes, a lot of the episodes. Right. Uh, and uh, I highly recommend. So thanks so much for, uh, for joining me. Well, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. You bet. Take care. So